0: There, you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Father Merkel is with us, who is in residence here at St. Ambrose. We're very blessed to have him. If you could please stand, and we'll begin in prayer.
2: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let's say Hail Mary, in honor of Mary, the greatest woman who shows all of our vocations. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And what glory be in thanksgiving for these talks, so that they can help us to grow in our faith and for all the speakers. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without
1: end. Amen. The first decade is. No, we better not. So, okay. <laughs> Thank you very much, Father. It is wonderful to see a hall full of people here at the Institute of Catholic Culture. It is a great blessing to be here this evening. As I said to you the other night, just to be able to have Dr. Alice von Hildebrand with us, it was sending chills up my back to have this great, great woman with us this evening. Now...
3: Um,
1: I will not be long, as the doctor told me, to begin like this. Our speaker this evening was born in Belgium on March 11, 1923, and she's not dead yet. We have with us a guest that needs no introduction, and that is why the walls of this hall are going to break apart if we bring any more in which is always a good thing in the Catholic Church when it comes to being educated. We are honored then to have with us a woman who I believe stands as an icon, one who has gone before us to educate us, to lead us out from where we were to where our Lord wants us to be. And for that, we are all indebted, and I ask you to join me in welcoming to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. Alice von Hildebrand.
3: I'm going to share with you a topic that all of us have at heart, women, It's a topic that never loses its interest (laughs) for men because they're men and for us women because we're women. And I feel it's a topic in which I feel very competent because I've been one for a long time (laughs) and truly used to it. (laughs) Now, being a woman, you should allow me to make some detours. And before I get to my topic, which is going to keep me quite busy, I'm going to say to you, Suppose that I came on this place and I said, Dear friends, thank you so very much for coming. I have a great plan and I need your help to organize it and to give it birth. I would like to start a foundation to fight leprosy in Virginia. Silence. <laughs> I expect that you're going to say, indeed, she is old. <laughs> as far as we know, there is no leprosy in Virginia. I was told recently that old disease can disappear from a while and reappear if circumstances are favorable. For example, if some people find it fun to destroy half the world, there'll be such confusion and disorder, it is quite possible that sicknesses that have disappeared for centuries are going to reappear. Now, my point is the following. We live in a very sick society. A philosopher is supposed to be a lover of wisdom. And my knowledge of the history of philosophy has taught me that even though many men declare themselves to be lovers of wisdom... Not very many are, are wise. And wisdom is going to tell us today our world is facing very grave problems. What are the problems that we should be concerned with? What are the things that we should put all our weight fighting against and praying that be overcome? It seems to me that there are three of them. The first one is what Benedict the Fifteenth called Dictatorial relativism, which is a cancer that has penetrated our society. And having taught in a secular university for 37 years and survived, I can tell you it is the cancer that you find all over. 90% of my students entered my classroom absolutely convinced that truth is not objective except for science. Science is something that you can truly know. But when it comes to philosophy or to religion, it's all a matter of opinion. And one of my students entered the classroom, very depressed, dragging his feet. And he said to me, why should your ideas be better than mine? A very good question to which I said, it all depends whether that's true or not. He said, what's truth? No. to teach that truth is objective in a secular university means to enter a battlefield behind the enemy's line. But deep down, I found out through my career that people have a deep longing for truth the whole question is to present it as something which is infinitely precious and which is ours if I say something true in my talk it's not man it is ours because truth is essentially catholic which means universal whereas if I say something which is false or remarkably stupid give me a patent It's truly mine. It's my own production. (laughs) Now, who taught me how to refute relativism? My students. Because, I mean, as I said, 90% convinced that truth doesn't exist at all. And then all of a sudden, you have ideas that come to your head to try to save yourself, because once you're in the classroom, willy nilly, you've got to win. And so, I said things that are stupid, and it is incredible how stupid things can be illuminating. I said, all right, to my students. Suppose that I came to the classroom and I said to my student last year, I had to take a sick leave for six months because I had a terrible breakdown. And they said, well, what happened to you? And I said, you know, for the first time in my life, I took a course on geometry. And upon finding out that the sum of the angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles. The shock was such <laughs> that I had a nervous breakdown. I couldn't stand it. No, my students, a particular student, taught me how to refute relativism. I was giving a talk course on metaphysics in Hunter, and inevitably the question of the immortality of the soul or the existence of God came up. And you can well imagine what is a position that I defended. And all of a sudden, a student, I still recall, he was sitting in the second row on the rat, rats his hand, and he said something that shattered me. He said, if you could convince me that I have an immortal soul, that is the most terrible thing that can happen to me in my life, because then I'll be held responsible after death for my lifestyle. It shattered me. Now, all of a sudden, I have the key, and I say to students, if you accept science, and you accept mathematics because you don't care whether the sum of the angle of triangle are equal to two right or Who cares? You just want to know it so that you get your grade. But whether or not there is a God, whether or not I have an immortal soul, whether or not moral values are objective, these are things that shake my personal life. And if you object, say to yourself, honestly, why? No, that gives you a key to try to explain to students that the fear of the word truth is simply because they're truth that dictates you how to live. Well, all right, that's relativism. It is an evil of such seriousness that unless the whole educational system in the United States is reanimated by the pursuit of truth, we are going downhill and downhill fast, have no illusion. The second is to my mind an evil of tremendous magnitude, pornography. When I was a child in Catholic Belgium, because at that time Belgium was still Catholic, I never saw a pornographic image. Today you have young children. If you take them to the mall, if you take them to a shopping center, if they happen to have a computer in their hands, almost inevitably, they will see filthy picture, which is going to remain imprinted in their minds until their very death. Pornography is an evil of such magnitude that I cannot personally understand why some people are terribly concerned about Puritanism and fighting Puritanism. Puritanism is an evil. But if you go to a mall, you're not going to say the curse of our society is that we've gone back to the Victoria age of being Puritanical. The danger is pornography. <coughs> and the third, and now finally I come to my topic, is feminism. And I borrow this idea from Benedict the Sixteenth, who said in one of his very beautiful talks that feminism is a tremendous danger because it is attacking the very foundation of our society, which is the family. By the very fact that he made this, he acknowledges that God has given a role of tremendous importance to women. And therefore, the first part of my talk is going to say, what is feminism? Why do I consider it to be a danger which is so tremendous? that when you see the breakup of marriage. Maybe the answer is that women have lost sense of the magnificent beauty of their mission. The greatness of Catholic teaching and Christian teaching is that precisely he has understood that God has given women a mission of crucial importance. In some way you can say the woman is a cornerstone of society. Now, let us turn to feminism. I'm going to give you a taste of what feminism is like by turning to one of the most famous feminists of the 20th century. I'm not a scholar, because when I discovered feminism years ago, and I studied this one book, it was plenty, and I didn't need to read. 10 or 15 other books of the same type. As soon as feminism started to gain, the first thing that my chairman did was to appoint a woman who was a radical feminist. And then there were courses about on feminism. And now you can get your PhD in some great university on feminism and, and the working of women. I'm going to choose one. And I chose her for a couple of reasons, and one of them is that most probably her name will go down in history, not because he was a radical feminist, but because she was a close, close friend of Jean-Paul Sartre and became very famous because of his connection, who is a man who is considered to be one of the great philosophical geniuses of the 20th century. Speaking about philosophical geniuses, and apparently our society produces good many of them, I'm going to make a remark, which I'd like you to take to heart. It is true that God gives special gifts to certain people. For example, there are some people who learn with extremely ease. There are people who pack ideas and get them without much effort. There are people that are extremely productive and can write and write and write forever and publish one book after the other. Let us acknowledge that it is so. Some people have these gifts. But there's one thing that life taught me. If you have received great intellectual gifts and are not baptized by humility, you're going to be responsible for the greatest disasters in philosophy or the great producer of heresies. All the fathers of wrong philosophies were, called geniuses. And geniuses because, as they let me repeat to you, great gifts must be baptized by humility. And if they're not baptized by humility, you're going to have philosophical disasters. For example, you take Kant. Don't tell me that Kant was not an intelligent man, but his philosophy is a disaster. Don't tell me that Sartre was not an intelligent or a gifted man, but his philosophy is another disaster, nausea. And I mean, he proclaims it and people are quite enthusiastic about it. You take Hegel, everything is constantly changing. Another one, and he considered himself to be a genius. What about Marx? Let me tell you very, very vocally and vehemently geniuses have been responsible for all heresies and geniuses have been responsible for all the greater wrong ideas that are dominating our world heresies are not born on farms a farmer is taking care of his cows and his pigs and he's a perfectly sound and normal person you find heresies born in universities this is where you find them and therefore, I simply say, it's all very good to say this person is very talented, is very intelligent. But if intelligent is not baptized, intelligent degenerates into cleverness. And there's an abyss between the two. To be clever is to be able to find an answer to all questions. You say whatever you please and someone is going to rebut you. And they feel very smart. Intelligence is talent, put at the service of truth. And this is what you're looking for. My whole philosophical formation is something that I owe to my husband. And what has attracted me so powerfully when I made his acquaintance is his passionate love for truth. He was basically a disciple of Socrates. And One person questioned Socrates about what is your philosophical position? And he answered, I'm interested in nothing but the truth. Shortly before his death, my husband confided to me very solemnly his literary bequest, which is huge. And you might need to know that 70% of his works haven't been translated as yet, to which I've devoted my life. And he said to me, I confide it to you, that if you find one single sentence which is not in agreement with the teaching of the church, burn it. His intelligence was baptized by humility. And this explains why I believe that his books are going to remain down in history as of tremendous philosophical importance. Now, let us turn to Simone de Beauvoir. I repeat, a very talented woman, extremely intelligent woman, about all sorts of, uh, you know, at the Sorbonne, a high degree in whatever you please, lots of... uh, She turned out to be a feminist, and let us try to find out, because of her, what feminism truly is. She wrote a book that I not only read, but studied, and I'm basing a part of my talk on this book. It's called The Second Sex. It was published in France, I believe, in the 50s. Immediately was translated in every possible language. And of course, in the United States, it was a bestseller in all time. Let us try to find out what Simone de Beauvoir has to tell us about women. And she was one. (laughs) She calls her The Second Sex and by second he means inferior. God created man, and that was a real sex, and then, as a sort of thought, he created woman. She's not a human being. The male is a human being. The female is only a becoming. She's only a female. She's only a sexual object. And of course you can discover how inferior it is from the very beginning because if you look at a woman's life, now I'm quoting, what I'm going to tell you are not things that I invent but something that she writes down and has an enormous success. A woman produces nothing. And you know what nothing is? Nothing. Nothing. She is imprisoned by her biology because quoting Freud, she says, biology is destiny. The very structure of the female body is already a condemnation to inferiority. Well, why? Because we're going to find out that number one, she was created because, I mean, Adam being lonesome needed a companion. In other words, he needed a bit of distraction after doing some serious work. It's not good to have some sort of distraction. And so there is a woman who is there to be his servant. She's to be there at his back and call, and satisfy his biological needs. You will notice that this idea has taken a literary form in the 19th century in the writing of the Norwegian writer Ibsen, who wrote a poem, I mean it was a play, called The Doll's House. I don't know if you have read it. But the basic idea is of this man, who is a powerful and talented businessman, and he treats his wife as... Little game, you know, you're exhausted from business and then you have a little bit of distraction, but basically it, it doesn't take us a human being. It's revolting. The whole thing is absolutely so disgusting, and of course it started in some way or gave you an know, impact to the feminist movement, which started in Norwegian, in Sweden, in Denmark, and in England, that is to say, in countries that have abandoned. The veneration of the Holy Virgin. Today it's invaded all over. On top of it, there's no greatness in women. <coughs> there's nothing great. Everything is petty and small and limited. For those of you who know German, the woman is imprisoned when he calls K K Kinder, Kirche, Kirche. And the three KKKs mean the woman is imprisoned in a kitchen because her mission is to cook for the man, imprisoned by biology, by children who take her time and attention, and then she finds some sort of compensation in being devout and going to church. So KKK, kuche kinder, kinder. That's all that she does. Greatness is to be measured by your readiness to die for a great and noble cause. A woman never does for anything worthwhile. Men do. You know, they fight for the country, they fight for the ideas, whatever it is. Women don't do that. No, Simone de Beauvoir tells us that a woman is disgusted by her own body. And this disgust starts, of course, at the age of puberty, when a woman starts having period. And she's disgusted by her body. Let me make one just brief remark. It is quite true that the human body produces certain things which are not appetizing. (laughs) And these are precisely the things we share with men. Because, I mean, don't tell me. Well, I'm not going to do details, you get my point. But when it comes comes to losing blood, all of us know that blood is something amazing, something which is extraordinary. To give your blood to another person is the greatest expression of love that you can imagine. And this is precisely what happened in the sacrifice of the cross. She's disgusted by her body, and as a result, she draws a conclusion. Why is a woman produces nothing? No Shakespeare, no Dante, no Michelangelo, no Beethoven, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And the question is, the curse is her body. And why is her body a curse? Because she has a womb. And this womb can produce children that totally prevent her from developing all her t- gifts and talents. The woman has produced nothing because she's imprisoned in a biology, and therefore she must conquer a biology. And how do you conquer a biology? Well, I mean, one possibility is abortion. That you expect a child and you don't want this child and this child is going to impeach your career, whatever it is, you get an abortion. She is a passionate defender of abortion in France, encouraging laws that pass by to allow abortion. You saw, because there's one small step towards liberating women. She says, And I feel like crying when I say so. I hate babies. Now, the woman, the day that a woman declares that she hates babies, I claim the sun sets. It's so abominable. You start feeling sorry for her. But she did not only hate babies. She hated animals. And what she hated most was to be criticized. Then she truly got absolutely wild. How does she approach marriage? At one point, when she fell in love with Jean Paul Sartre, which was quite a passionate affair for a very short time, because I mean, afterwards, he was very open minded, and of course, uh, Simon said when he wasn't made for monogamy, but wasn't she either. At any rate, she claims that marriage is obscene and thank god there's some hope in socialism which is another way to say for communism because it liberates women you know allowing divorce you relate to a person when you feel like it but marriage is obscene for the very plain reason that you are forced to do by duty the things that should be the result of passion or excitement or whatever it might be but the very moment that it becomes a duty, you cannot imagine something which is more depressing and more imprisoning than that. She has a very sublime ideas that just has men, they are brothers. And unfortunately, they still exist and always have existed when men can go to satisfy their desires. And she suggests that brothers should also be created for women. You know, a place that you can go to satisfy yourself when necessary and then you pay the bill and you go. Apparently it was tried once in San Francisco, of course, San Francisco, and went bankrupt. (laughs) Well, that is the end of the story. (laughs) The hope is socialism, because socialism gives women a chance to competing with men Uh, to know they've done nothing but for the very plain reason they haven't been given a chance no, I hope you have a sense of humor because if you don't laugh I won't forgive you (laughs) You women have produced nothing because the circumstances were such that they totally prevented from being creative the wings were cut before she had the chance to fly. There are two exceptions, two women that were extraordinary and amazing because they lived in the most ideal circumstances, favoring their genius. Katharina of Siena and Teresa of Avila. My dear friend, I'm happy to inform you that to live in a convent and to live a life of extreme poverty in which you work from morning to night means to live in ideal circumstances which explain the creativity of Teresa of Avila. Just for fun, I read in one of her books. And about ten times she said, you know, I'm sorry I keep interrupting myself, but we have a lot of work to do, and, you know, I had no time to continue. And she sees this living ideal circumstances, Carmelis ideal circumstances. At any rate, it just shows you the tragedy of a talented, intelligent woman whose pride is such that she becomes totally blind. And it is one nonsense after the other that a child in grammar school refuses. Let us not have a look at what the Bible says about women. That all that I'm going to share with you is things that are in the Bible, that you know, but I would like to draw your attention to the fact that even though you can read the Bible hundreds of times, there are always certain things that you're going to forget and overlook. What's does, number one, Let me make fun of her, He said the woman is second sex, the copy. In fact, the original comes after the rough draft. And if she came after man, you could also say, which is just as stupid, you know, Adam was a rough draft and Eve was the final copy. (laughs) Well, I mean, look, it is just as stupid, but teaching taught me That you find a stupidity with another stupidity and you win. (laughs) And I always won in the end. All right, let us turn to the Bible. Don't forget that what I'm going to tell you is not my own. I'm just going to call the Bible. God created Adam, created man to his image and likeness, male and female, he created them. In other words, God tells us very explicitly that the fullness of human nature is to be found in male and female together. Not just male, not just female, both of them together. Then there's a moment when he says that Adam, his body was created from the slime of the earth between us. Not a very aristocratic beginning. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, from time to time, you know, when men, some of them, are very much machos and feel terribly superior, and then you gently remind them, you know, your body was made from the slime of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> what about Eve? He was alone, and God said, it's not good for man to be alone. He's made for communion, he's made for love. And he puts him in a deep sleep. Don't ask me to interpret how the whole thing happened. I can only say it was put in a deep sleep and Eve's body was taken from the body of Adam. And that was Eve, the only material creature, the only one. And there were millions of them whose body is taken from the body of a person made to God's image and likeness. If that is not an aristocratic beginning, I don't know what is. It gives me a feeling of awe for the body, the female body that God has chosen for me. It was not my choice, but it gives me a feeling of awe because my body was made from the body of a person made to God's image and likeness. Adam wakes up and he sees her. And what is his response? His response is a response of every normal male. Enchantment. Flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And then it is said, and for the sake of his wife, he will leave his father and mother and adhere to his wife. It's not said that he will leave. And then he says something which is overwhelming. He calls her the mother of the living. In other words, he declares, and this is something that each woman should meditate upon every day, the bond between woman and life. And this is something that God himself has created. Woman and life belong together. And then comes original sin an incredibly tragic happening which is going to affect us for the rest of human existence. The serpent, who is the most clever of all animals, turns to Eve. This one doctor of the church and father of the church for whom I have a boundless admiration and love, a very personal love, St. Augustine, I read his confessions when I was 19 and I still believe that it's possibly the greatest book written after the Bible. It's overwhelming. It should be on our night table. Nevertheless, very great men can make mistakes and even the doctors of the church can say things which are misleading or unfortunate. And my beloved St. Augustine says, the serpent turned to Eve because she was a weaker sex and therefore easier to conquer. For the first time in my life, when I read that, I said, Beloved Saint Augustine, forgive me, you are deadly wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he turned to Eve because being so slim, he knew that she had a tremendous influence on him. The power of women over men is enormous for good or for evil. And I mean, from this point of view, you could very much call them the strong sex. But you will notice one thing that must be mentioned dramatically. It does not, simply raises a question. Then we can't we raise questions it's not all right as human beings to raise questions. And he said, why can't you eat of the fruit of that tree? And the idiotic, he said, well, we were told that if we did so-so, we'll die. He says, no. The father of lion. no. You're going to become like God. But to be like God means to say to be liberated from what I called in an article I published recently, the burden of creaturehood. You no longer have to obey. You're the superior one. She eats the fruit and gives it to him. Did he say, dear wife, it was prohibited? We may not. He takes it. The first grape wimp in the history of... I mean, that's what he was. I go to school at the age of five and I was told about this and then they discover the horror of their sin and hid themselves. When you you sin you hide yourself and then God said, have you eaten a fruit? And he must acknowledge this. The snake, the serpent, tempted me. In other words, he puts a fall on someone else. Something that we all do when we accuse her, it's the fault of so-and-so, it's the fault of so-and-so, it's the fault of my brother, it's fault of this, it's a fault of my education, it's a fault of my birth, it's the fault of my great-grandmother. It's always someone else's fault. But to my horror, Adam said, she tempted me. I was five years old, and I was outraged. I said, he's no gentleman, my father would not do that to my mother. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely pitiful. At any rate, what happens is that both of them are born and be published. Death. Death. Many people are going to make a big fuss about saying, you know, today the great danger is, you know, to separate body and soul. Man is made up of body and soul. Of course he is. But being as close to death as I am, I cannot wake up in the morning without forgetting that within a few days or a few weeks, this body that you see is just going to be dust and ashes. That's all. That's going to be my body, eaten by worms, and just going to be a handful of dust. What about my soul? It is immortal. No, that is not dualism. I don't know what isn't. There is my soul, either in purgatory or in heaven or in hell. And my body is there. To my mind, one of the most admirable dogmas of the church is the resurrection of the body. Something absolutely amazing. But sometimes you say to yourself, take the body of Adam and Eve, bury it 6,000 years or 8,000 years. I mean, what do I care? And all of a sudden they're reunited. My goodness. Must be some sort of readjustment after six thousand years of separation. <laughs> I mean, something very, I mean, I'm not going to worry about that, but I simply say something amazing. But Eve is particularly punished. And she's punished in the very domain which is her glory. To give birth. And from this day on, Those of you who have given birth know the anguish of someone who says, how can this be? How is it possible for a baby of 8 or 10 or 11 pounds to come out of my body? And the anguish and the dread and the suffering. Now, if Christians are not taught the greatness of giving birth, and that suffering has a meaning. You can well understand that atheists like Simon Weil, will consider that to give birth is a curse. I mean, after all, for nine months your body is going with some sort of a burden. And they see it's a curse. So the dignity of a woman, for feminists, becomes a curse. There's no doubt about the fact. No, I'm not a feminist, and I beg my friends, the men in this room, not to take offense at what I'm going to say. But let us take the marble further. Eve gives birth to Cain, the firstborn, a male. And what does she say? For months now, I've been teasing my friends. People who are Christians read the Bible, and I say, When Eve gave birth to Cain, what did she say? And even priests could not answer the question. She says, With God's help, I brought a child into the world. Now, with my Latin imagination, I immediately picture Adam sort of saying, Well, did I have something to do too? I mean, after all, I'm I'm the father of the child, very sheepingly. But believe it or not, Eve was a budding theologian. The semen is not a person, the egg is not a person. The fecundated egg is not yet a person, but what happens? And there you see the unbelievable dignity of the female body. What does God do? Know that the female, the egg has been fecundated, is in the female body. God touches it and gives it a soul. And God alone creates a soul. It has nothing to do with the father. It has nothing to do with the mother. The semen and the eggs are pre-given. The soul is a new one that God himself gives in the woman's body. So to speak, touching the female body. Now, if God touches your body, you can immediately understand that it becomes a sacred object. Because whatever God touches is secret. And then once again, let us look at the divine plans, which is amazing. And the divine plan is that in the course of time, just decided, God decided, that after long, long prayers, he would give a little girl to a couple that was infertile for a long time. And this girl is born without the stain of original sin the only creature among these billions and billions and billions of creatures who is Tota Poja. She's a little girl and her name is Mary. And the birth of this little child is going to create the greatest revolution in the history of the world. One day, she is surprised by the visit of an angel who greets her as full of grace. And in her humility, she's overwhelmed. And she's offered to become the child of this mother of the Savior. And what does she do? She says, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be done to me according. Simone de Beauvoir, to go back to her, says, women are passive, man is active, and therefore is greater. She's a pitiful philosopher, (laughs) you know, which is typical of very proud people who derail. There is an abyss between passivity and receptivity. Of course, the mistake goes all the way back to Aristotle. And Aristotle says man is active and the woman is passive and therefore the male is superior to the female. For goodness sake! A woman is not passive, she is receptive. She accepts to be fecundated and by doing so she gives herself. Which is something amazing. There is a self-gift in receptivity. This is the attitude that every human being, male or female, should be towards God. To let ourselves be fecundated by God's grace, to say yes to God, he offers it to us, and many of us refuse. She says yes. And she conceives a male child who is the savior of the world. Now you recall that Eve was declared to be the mother of the living. And Mary gives birth in Bethlehem to a male child who says, I am the life. You see the abyss between the mother of the living, but I am life itself. And she gives birth to life itself, who is our savior. There's a lot of discussion against feminists, which I heard again and again at nauseam. The Catholic Church sins gravely against women because she doesn't allow them to become priests. When some of them are going to say to you, I'm perfectly equipped, I'm a lot more intelligent than Father so-and-so and and Father so-and-so is. (laughs) And I have a PhD, and I'm not permitted to become a priest. Well, that is a great sin of the Catholic Church. One of the great sins of the Catholic Church. Now, let me tell you, share with your meditation of Mary giving birth to a man who is God and says, I'm life. And this man is a priest. I wish that every priest would remember when he celebrates Mars at the altar that it's no Father Brown or no Father John or no Father Smith or both of them. In this moment, he represents Christ. And this is why his personality should totally disappear. He should represent Christ. His personality should vanish. In this moment, he is an alter Christus. Now, the conclusion that I draw, which is a perfectly logical conclusion, is therefore there's only one priest, one in the whole world, Christ himself. And this priest has a mother. And this mother is Mary. And being the mother of the only priest, it explains why it's impossible for the Church to consecrate women because you cannot be mother and son simultaneously. The greatness of women is to be the mother of priests. And Mary was a mother of the only priest, and this is why, obviously, it was inconceivable that she should play the role of a son. The consecration of women is totally and essentially excluded for someone who understands the teaching of the church. All right. Now, I've just shown to you that the biblical presentation of womanhood is radically and essentially different from the one that the feminist bring. It's an abominable, let us say, it's a caricature of what a woman ought to be. A woman has the extraordinary dignity of giving birth. The woman gives life and for this reason she is hated by Satan. Christ says in the Gospel that Lucifer was a murderer from the beginning. He's a father of lies and this one he lied to Eve and he's a father, he hates life because he's Therefore, who is the greatest enemy of Satan? The woman. And he said in Genesis, there'd be an antagonist between you and the woman, not the man, not the strong sex, the woman. Now, my friends, let me tell you frankly, and this is something I said at the very end of my life, the fact that no abortion is legalized in many countries of the world, including so-called christian phil- uh, countries, is the greatest victory of Satan's sins, original sin, because it is a fight against life, because he says, to women have convinced you that to give life is precisely will presents you from developing your personality and becoming big shots. It is an abomination. We must fight for it every single moment of our lives, It is the victory of Satan over women. She is defeated the very moment she kills her own child. Let me come to the second part of my talk. A long time ago, I was born a woman. (laughs) Did Did I choose it? No. And I recall... You know, one raising the absolutely stupid questions because stupid questions have a lot of success in our society. <laughs> Suppose that before you were born, God said to you, "You want to be a man and a woman." What would you have said? You would have said, "Well, um, oh no, maybe, maybe I change." Oh no, no, I change my mind. Like people want to go to a restaurant every moment; they want a different menu, and rather wait, they crazy. <laughs> God chose and he chose me to be a woman. My next point is the following. He made me to be a woman. And by doing so, he's giving me a message. He's telling me something. Don't you understand that in education it is of tremendous importance that from the moment a child is a small little child, whether boy or girl, That they are told that this is something very special that God chose for them with a purpose. And then to explain to a little boy the beauty of masculinity, the greatness of masculinity, you know, which you find so superbly incarnated in Saint Joseph, who is protecting Mary. He's a strong one, physically speaking, he's protected. Masculinity is something magnificent. But so is femininity. And it seems to me that once I have understood the beauty of femininity, you know, to protect, to love, to turn to what is weak, the beauty of woman is, I'm quoting my husband, is that heart and mind have a much closer relationship. It is their greatness and it is their weakness because if the heart is not quite as pure as it should be, it is diverse. There is a very admirable woman thank God, has been canonized and is now the world over, Edith Stein, who studied at the same university with my husband And in 1930, she gave a talk in Salzburg. And speaking precisely, you know, because the feminist movement was slowly developing and trying to explain what are the fundamental differences between male and female. Because they're different. I mean, if a man tries to play the woman, it's a disaster. And if a woman plays the man, it's another disaster. And he mentioned three things that I think you would appreciate. She says, by the very nature of femininity, women are more drawn to persons than to inanimate objects. And just invent the following scenario. Suppose that you have a big group of people, men, male and females, in front of a door, and the door is locked. And they are told at one particular point they'd be permitted to enter into this mysterious room. And they come to a room which is totally empty except a baby in a cradle and a new computer. <laughs> <laughs> to men, horror, Women, worthy to be, will rush to the baby. I mean, I say, oh, it's a baby? And then turn to the computer. <laughs> no, if this is not the greatest defeat of men that you can conceive, I mean, what is a computer? It has no soul. Of course, you don't have to change its diapers.
1: <laughs>
3: but on the other hand, it drives you mad. I see drafting out every second day because all of a sudden it's not a bad mood or goes in a coma, or God knows what, and ruins my work. <laughs> to be drawn to persons rather to to non persons. And she is right. And that is the greatest of women. And the very moment that women prefer a computer to a baby, the sun sets. It's over. She says they're more attracted to things that are living than non-living. You know, for example, take the passion of little boys with mechanical games. You know, my brother was two years older and I thought that it was math. I thought <laughs> it was incredibly boring, you know, mechanical and putting this into this. Who cares? <laughs> well, But when you go to a factory, you see, you enter a factory. To me, it's monstrous. It's absolutely monstrous. Of course, it produces all sorts of things at fantastic speed. But there's no soul. Don't tell me that machines are reflecting God. Flower does. A blade of grass does. The wind does. It each time says, the mission of women, therefore, is to foster life, to serve life. You know, for my penance and sins, i spent a lot of time in hospital in my life. Believe me, women are better nurses than men because now the new fashion is to have men nurses, or very efficient and the rest of it. But I mean, once I simply said, go out of it, I don't want you. And they obeyed. <laughs> women, women, and to my experience, Filipino women are the best nurses. <laughs> because, because they're still women. They're women. You know, it's all very good to be, and you do this, and you take this medicine, and so on. And so on. But I mean, don't you understand that a patient is a patient? And when you suffer, you know, one smile, one can word means infinitely more than all these pills and medicines that you get in quantity. You see, I mean, in other words, what is dying in our society is a relationship that you are persons. You are children of God. And therefore, when I treat you and approach you as being such, there's a contact which is today disappearing to my horror. I found out more and more women do want to be engineers. I'm going to quote Chesterton, who is a great friend of mine. Not only because of his tremendous humor, but because he knows exactly when he throws arrows. You know, he says, he speaks about men and women and says some very good things and some very weird things about him, and he said, you know, you know, one of the problems with women is that they're so made for maternity and taking care of other people that when they do secretarial work, they treat it as if it's a living child. And if when you misplace a pencil or do something right or it's such a state of excitement as in the world. Easy. And this is why they do secretarial work so well and should never do it. <laughs> it says men are basically lazy; they only do things what they have to do. It. <laughs> in the case of women. You know, I've crossed the continent because I'm European. I've crossed the continent many, many times. I give you one piece of advice. When you go and your luggage is checked up, I'll never go to a woman. She's so thorough, she opens and everything to make sure that you're not hiding a pig. Men are so lazy. It's marvelous. They look at it so and let you pass and you. <laughs> let Men, be women and like me men and the conclusion is my talk is the following at the very end of my life I've come to the conclusion and this is something that I say caricatively because I'm absolutely certain of it if you truly understand and approve and respect the mystery of your sex it gives you a key to the other sex we live in a society when men fight women and women fight men. I mean, it's, it's a mess. A society in which you raise questions. Why can't two men get married? Is a society which is condemned by the very fact that you raise a question. It shouldn't be raised. And if you raise it, it already shows that you're on track 200%. The moment you understand the beauty of femininity... The beauty. You have a key to the other sex. I'll give you a proof. Who understood Mary best? Answer. Saint Joseph. Nobody could possibly understand her beauty, and the love between them was so magnificent that the Holy Scripture doesn't mention it because we'd be unworthy of it the way that we live. Who was understood St. Francis best and vice versa? St. Clair, a man and a woman. Who had the deepest understanding of St. John of the Cross? St. Teresa of Avila. Who had the most beautiful spiritual relationship with St. Francis of Sales? St. François de Chantal. So you see that once we truly understand the beauty of our own sex, we are capable of understanding the beauty of the other sex. And I mean, this is why what marriage is supposed to be, a man who truly understands the beauty of his masculinity, to be a protector, to help, to comfort, and the beauty of femininity. And then you have the beauty of Christian marriage, which is so blessed by Christ that his first miracle took place at Cana. Thank you. No, just one thing. Please do me one favor. Give credit to my husband.
1: I owe it all to him. Okay, thank you very much, Doctor, for your wonderful, wonderful presentation. I know many of you were praying this last week as I addressed a clergy conference in San Antonio, Texas. And I told them something not quite as eloquent, of course, as Doctor told us tonight. But we have a crisis in our church, and it is not a crisis in vocations to the priesthood. It is not a crisis in leadership of our bishops. It is a crisis in identity of Christian people. And it is about time that we start to come to an understanding of who we have been made in the image and likeness of God. And when we begin to understand that again, I believe that we will light a fire in our society which I dare say cannot be put out because it will be the fire of the Holy Spirit. But we have to begin to understand again who we are, to pray about who we are. Because when we begin to understand who we are, we will once again understand who God is. And then we will desire him with all of our heart. Doctor, are you available for a few questions at the end? Are you feeling up for that? You're not feeling up for it. Okay, that's well, fine. I my mean,
3: father,
1: I'm old. You're old. You know, you've squeezed the lemon to the line. I called Dr. Alice von Hildebrand three years ago, and she told me I would like to come to the Institute of Catholic Culture, but I don't know if I will die first. <laughs> I called her every few months since then. I never stopped. And here she is today with us. Thank you very much for being with us today.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, Please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540 635 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.